This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 29. We'll be looking at verses 29 through chapter 8, verse 3. Jeremiah 7, verse 29. As I mentioned last time, 29 uh, is somewhat difficult to tell whether it should go with the passage that precedes or the passage that follows the ESV actually has a section heading right after it, but it seems to me uh, more natural to take it with what comes after, uh, just because of the nature of it and the way 30 uh, seems to be tied to it. So we'll begin our reading in verse 29 through chapter 8, verse 3. Hear the word of God. Cut off your hair and cast it away. Raise a lamentation on the bare heights. For the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no more be called Topeth, nor the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury in Topeth, because there is no room elsewhere. And the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and none will frighten them away. And I will silence in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land shall become a waste. At that time, declares the Lord, the bones of the kings of Judah, the bones of its officials, the bones of the priests, the bones of the prophets, And the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be brought out of their tombs. And they shall be spread before the sun and the moon and all the host of heaven, which they have loved and served, which they have gone after, and which they have sought and worshipped. And they shall not be gathered or buried. They shall be as dung on the surface of the ground. Death shall be preferred to life by all the remnant that remains of this evil family in all the places where I have driven them, declares the Lord of hosts. Let us pray. Father, we pray that as we turn our attention now to this somber passage, that you would use it to teach us, use it to uh, open our eyes, Father, both to the horrors of sin and rebellion, but also, Father, all the more to appreciate the light of the grace that we have in Christ Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. 
This is indeed perhaps one of the darkest passages in all of Jeremiah. As we come to this passage, it uh, really follows up on a passage that takes the people to task for their empty worship, for their religious activity, but activity that was devoid of the heart of the people. Their misplaced trust in the temple earlier in chapter 7, their confidence in it, to the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And then uh, the Lord goes on to uh, instruct Jeremiah not to pray for the people. Uh, the people actually engage in family worship of a kind, but the problem is they're worshiping the Queen of Heaven. They're engaging in idolatrous worship. And uh, the Lord expresses his frustration with their sacrifices. Frankly, he says, I don't care how you do them. It really doesn't matter because you don't understand that what I, I want is not your efforts to buy me off with your sacrifices. I want your obedience. I want your heart. And even from the beginning, as we look back at Exodus, uh, the command, the instruction in verse 23 was to obey my voice and I will be your God and you will be my people. The sacrifices come later as a recognition that they would not obey perfectly. But the people had twisted it to the idea that what God wanted was the sacrifices, and as long as they did their duty, they could live any way that they please. And so God describes it in verse 28. This is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, did not accept discipline. Truth has perished. It is cut off from their lips. About as bad as it could get, right? Wrong. As we come to this passage before us, we see uh, that it can get much, much worse. It begins in verse 29 with a lamentation. Cut off your hair and cast it away. Raise a lamentation on the bare heights, for the Lord is rejected and forsaken, the generation of his wrath, which is a Hebrew, Hebrewism that basically means this generation upon which his wrath rests, like referring to Judas in the Gospel of John as the son of perdition. Uh, some translate it, the one doomed to destruction, the generation of his wrath. That means that generation upon which his wrath has come. But this whole expression of cut off your hair, cast it away, is an interesting one. The word for hair there uh, literally has the idea of a crown. Or and together with that, perhaps, the idea of consecration. It's the word nezer, hair or crown, and you may recognize it as Related to the word a Nazarite. You familiar with the, the Nazarite? Turn back to Numbers chapter 6. Numbers chapter 6 uh, speaks of, uh, has a couple of significant things in it. Well, a lot really. It has the, the familiar benediction, the Aaron, Aaronic benediction at the end. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord makes his face shine upon you. That's where that comes from. But the beginning of the chapter uh, explains the whole concept of the Nazarite vow. And look at what it says. The Lord spoke to Moses. This is uh, number 6-1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, and again the word Nazarite, as the ESV footnote explains, means one separated, consecrated, the vow of a Nazarite to separate or consecrate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink. Shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried. All the days of his separation, 
Uh, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. All the days of his vow of separation, which the idea here is it's a temporary thing, it's not necessarily permanent, but there's a period of time. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. He shall let the locks of his hair of his head grow long. All the days he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body, not even for his father or his mother, brother or sister, if they die, shall he make himself unclean, because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord, and so on. So the Nazarite vow is tied up in uh, several uh conditions or restrictions against drinking fermented drinks, against cutting one's hair. And in fact, it could say that the sign of the Nazarite was was in his hair, was on his head. Who is the most famous Nazarite in the scriptures? Samson, who was one of the worst Nazarites in all of scripture. Samson, remember he went near the dead body of the lion and just... Uh, really made a mockery of the whole thing. But uh, his hair, right? It was all about Samson and that fine head of hair he had. Uh, and what happened when the hair was cut off? The power was gone. Was the power in his hair? No. But the hair was symbolic of his consecration to the Lord. And in his folly, that was taken from him. And his power was gone. His consecration was defiled. Cut off your hair and cast it away. That's a sign of lamentation to be sure. But it's as if God says, take any evidence of your consecration to me and get rid of it. Just cut it off and throw it away. Because you've made a complete joke of it. You've made a complete mockery of it. Raise a lamentation on the bare heights, for the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. Strong words. Why would he say such a thing? Well, we go on in verse 30. For, because, the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. And he mentions a couple of specifics. They have set their detestable Things, their abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They still practice the worship of the Lord in a sense, at least an outward sense. But they also began to incorporate the worship of other deities, including uh, Ishtar or Ashtoreth, uh, Astarte, uh, the queen of heaven and other pagan deities. And they begin to bring images, likenesses uh, of these deities into the temple of the Lord. Uh, It would be like uh, a church that's continuing to have worship services, uh, and yet in the fellowship hall uh, has uh, a Wiccan operation going, uh, or is uh, engaging in uh, the worship of, of Buddha or some other deity. Uh, you see, the Lord does not share. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous 
God. He wants your devotion and He wants all of it. And He will not share it with another. And you cannot worship both the Lord and other deities or other idols or other priorities. Because as soon as you begin to do that, you've lost the worship of the Lord because He won't have it. He will not allow it. And he says, they brought their detestable things, their abominations into my house, the house that is called by my name, to defile it. But that's not all. Verse 31. And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire. Here is Israel engaging in the offering up of their own infants as burnt offerings. Israel, this is Judah, this is Jerusalem. These are the descendants of those who came out of Egypt in the Exodus, who were given the Ten Commandments, who were given the covenants. And they're offering up their own children in the fire. Topheth means fireplace. Why would they do that? Had they so completely forgotten God's word? Were they that cruel? No, I don't think so. I think those sacrifices cost them dearly and tore their hearts badly. Why would they do such a thing? We know what God goes on to say here seems to imply something. He says, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. The implication here is that somehow they thought that's what the Lord wanted. And God is saying it never entered my mind that you would do such a thing as that. Why would they think such a thing? Well, Earlier in the Old Testament, we do read how the firstborn was to be consecrated to the Lord uh, as recognition of the Lord's sparing the firstborn when he brought them out of Egypt. There was to be a redemption of the firstborn in each house, but it was made with a, with a, with a monetary payment. And somehow that seems to have gotten twisted. That what God wanted was your firstborn on an altar of fire. And God says, I did not command that. That didn't even come into my mind that you should burn your children on a fire. That's the practice of those who worship Molech. That's the practice of those who worship Baal. And somehow that had crept in to Judah and they were offering their own covenant children as sacrifices to the Lord. It's sick, right? Barbaric, right? Not something we would see in our day, right? Not something we would see in the good old USA, right? Curious that this text should fall on the sanctity of life Sunday. Because there are places in this city, and there are places across this country, where children are offered up on the idol of the worship of self, the worship of convenience, the worship of expedience, the worship of self-protection. Fifty million children 
since 1973 in the United States. I dare say Israel, I dare say Judah, never offered that many children up on the altar of worshiping what they thought was the Lord, what they thought was right. We need to recognize that abortion is a spiritual issue. There is very much an element of misdirected worship involved. Uh, There's something scary about the zeal with which abortion is pursued and promoted in this country, at the expense certainly of the children involved, but also uh, of the mothers involved. Um, it's, it's strange in our society uh, that uh, choice, as it's euphemistically described, should be so zealously promoted and pursued. And ultimately, while there's a lot of factors involved, there are people making an awful lot of money off the abortion industry, it really comes down to being a spiritual problem. And the answer to it ultimately is not legal or political, but it is spiritual. But it is scary, the perspective that many have in our society. You know, it used to be we, we, the, the, the pro-life movement's burden was to convince that that unborn child was a human being. And that's still a need. There are still people who have a very inadequate understanding of just what it is that's there growing in the womb. But you know what's even more frightening? Is those who concede that it is a human being in the womb, yet it makes no difference. How many of you have heard of Peter Singer? Heard of Peter Singer? Peter Singer is a professor at uh, Princeton University. Peter Singer uh, has an argument uh, about abortion and about infants. Um, He he recognizes uh, the fact that the unborn child is a human being. He says the argument that a fetus is not alive is a resort to a convenient fiction that turns an evidently living being into one that legally is not alive. Instead of accepting such fictions, this is Singer's own words, instead of accepting such fictions, we should recognize the fact that a being is human and a lot that the fact that a being is human and alive does not in itself tell us whether it is wrong to take that being's life. You hear what he's saying? He's saying we need to acknowledge it's human, we need to acknowledge it's a living being, but that in and of itself doesn't tell us whether it's wrong to take that being's life. Now, he applies that to the unborn child. Similarly, uh, and very similar to his arguments for abortion, Singer argues that infants, born infants, babies outside the womb, Born, alive, thriving, whatever. He argues that infants similarly lack essential characteristics of personhood, as he defines it. Rationality, autonomy, self-consciousness. And therefore, direct quote, simply killing an infant is never equivalent to killing a person. Teaches at Princeton University the institution of which Jonathan Edwards was once president. Peter Singer is the professor of bioethics at Princeton University. You see, this is horrifying what Jeremiah writes about. But if you were to be horrified, you need only look around. You need only keep your ears open. But you know, and I know, that ultimately the enemy is not the woman pursuing an abortion, certainly. 
Ultimately, the enemy is not the doctor who performs the abortion, certainly. Ultimately, the enemy is not the Supreme Court that rules states cannot restrict abortion, certainly. Ultimately, the enemy is Satan himself. Because if there's anything more satanic than the kind of position that Peter Singer espouses, who himself is in the grips of the devil, if there's anything more satanic than that, I don't know what is. Did not command it, nor did it come into my mind. And so what? What are the consequences? Verse 32, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no more be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. They will bury in Topheth, because there's no room elsewhere. And the dead bodies of this people, uh, Judah, will be food for the birds of the air, the beasts of the earth. You know, it used to be that's what happened to the enemies of Judah. Remember David? And Goliath, those were the threats that were made, uh, those kinds of things. But the Lord is saying that of, of Judah now. None will frighten them away. What's he saying? Well, he's saying, I'm going to bring in an enemy who is going to slaughter, who's going to kill. These, the bodies of these people will be buried in Topheth. Uh, someone put it, the sanctu- their sanctuary will become their cemetery. Uh, they'll be buried there. That'll be the place of their death. And what is worse, their bodies will simply lie around and become food for animals. A horrid thought anyway, but uh, particularly for them, a uh, proper burial was a significant and important thing. And the sounds of quiet, of desolation. Verse 34, I will silence in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of weddings, the sound, the happy sounds of weddings, the voice of bridegroom, and the voice of the bride. The land shall become a waste. The promise of destruction, the promise of death. At that time, declares the Lord, the bones of the kings of Judah, the bones of its officials, bones of the priests, prophets, inhabitants, shall be brought out of their tombs. Not only will those killed not receive a proper burial and just become food for animals, those who have died, perhaps in an earlier day and been buried, will have their graves desecrated. Uh, A great insult, a, a vast dishonor. This practiced even to this day. Uh, to haul out someone's bones and scatter them in certain places uh, is seen as, as an insult, a way of getting back at the person. Verse 2, they shall be spread before the sun and the moon and all the host of heaven, which they've loved and served, which they've gone after. Kind of fitting. Uh, they've worshipped the sun and the moon and the stars, and now their bones will be dragged out and laid under the sun and moon and stars to face uh, their cold indifference. And they shall not be gathered or buried. They shall be as dung on the surface of the ground. In other words, their bones are just going to lie there and turn to lime and become fertilizer for the ground. And what's more, the ones who died will be the lucky ones. Death shall be preferred to life by all the remnant that remains of this evil family and all the places where I have driven them, declares the Lord of hosts. Pretty dim picture, wouldn't you say? You know, Philip Ryken, in his commentary on Jeremiah, asks a very good question. Is there no grace here? Very often in Jeremiah, even in passages of of dire judgment, there is at least a verse, maybe at least half a verse of, of of a word of hope that the Lord's going to turn things around, that things will get better. 
Is there no grace here? Is there no hope here? You know, if you go to the New Testament, uh, where there are passages that refer to hell. Uh, Do not fear him who can destroy the body, but fear him who can cast both body and soul in hell. You know what the Greek word is for hell? Gehenna. Gehenna. You know where that phrase comes from? Well, Gehenna was, it referred actually to a valley just south of Jerusalem where the city dumped its waste, dumped its trash, and would burn it. It was the city dump for Jerusalem. And because the trash would be burning, because it would be smoldering, there would always be smoke going up from Gehenna, the valley, and uh, rising up. And so Gehenna became symbolic of hell. Do you know where the name Gehenna comes from? Look at verse 31. They built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom. You see, the Greek word is derived from the Hebrew name for that valley, Barhenna, the son of Hinnom, the valley of Hinnom, Gehenom, uh, which became the Greek term Gehenna. You see, that valley that was the city dump for Jerusalem is this very same valley. Is there grace here? No. Because this is hell. This is hell. There is no grace here. There is nothing here but the wrath and judgment of a holy God against rebellious and wicked and depraved people. There is no grace in hell. And so this passage should serve as a warning to us that there are those one day who will be forever cut off from the grace of God or any possibility of coming into the grace of God. It's a place Jesus describes where the worm is not still and the fire is not quenched. It's Gehenna. It's the place where the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Now, happily, in, even in the book of Jeremiah, uh, although it doesn't occur in this passage, there is in another place a hint of grace, though not in hell or for those in hell, but for those who live in the day of the Lord's favor, as Paul describes it, the day of salvation. Over in Jeremiah chapter 31, a, Jeremiah, a chapter which I hope you know uh, as that which promises the new covenant much later on in the chapter than this, but there's a word of hope here. Uh, Jeremiah 31, verse 4, Again, I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines. This is chapter 31, verse 4. And shall go forth in the dance of merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit. For there shall be a day when watchmen will call in the hill country of Ephraim. Now rise, let us go up to Zion. To the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. You see, the Lord does promise good to his people. The Lord promises that there will be those who will receive the grace of God. 
And the Lord promises that there will be those who are not left under his wrath. Uh, there was, in fact, a remnant of Judah, as bad as things were, uh, even after they were taken into exile, even after that destruction of Jerusalem had taken place, even after these words were fulfilled in their first fulfillment, uh, who came back and who began to rebuild those walls, who began to rebuild something of a, uh, of a, of a dim echo of the temple, uh, and that remnant was preserved. And in God's grace, the Lord Jesus Christ came. Because ultimately, that is our only hope, not in sacrificing our children, but in turning to the one who, for our sakes, sacrificed his own son so that we might be right with him and so that our sins would be forgiven. You see, I'm convinced that these people in Judah, while wrong, in many cases were sincerely deceived. God says, I didn't want your children. That didn't enter my mind. That's not at all what I wanted. Uh, And yet they had indulged in these pagan practices. But the good news is that God has given his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish and will not be in hell or the valley of Hinnom or Gehenna, uh, but will have everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, we pray that this passage would serve to warn us that you are not to be trifled with. Father, we dare not turn to other gods, but to you alone. Father, forgive us our guilt. Please have mercy on our nation for its guilt, for its blood-stained hands. Father, we pray for the knowledge of the Lord to cover our nation. We pray for the knowledge of the Lord to cover our families. Pray for the knowledge of the Lord to cover our churches. We pray for the knowledge of the Lord to cover ourselves. Because, Lord, we know full well our hearts are idle factories. We pray for the true knowledge of the true and living God to be evident in our lives, that we would worship and serve you only forever. We pray it in Christ's holy and gracious name. Amen.